This message was presented at the GYC 2014 conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. One more time. Wow. <laughs> Have the testimonies been beneficial? Can you identify with any part of these testimonies that along the way? We're human beings, isn't that right? We were wired to have emotions, to experience physical contact with people, and yet Satan uses anything he can to, to disturb us or to unground us. And so what I want to end with today is we, we've talked about all the ugliness that's, that Satan has wielded on us, and I, I even know some of you people in the audience. I know some of what you've been struggling with because you shared it. Better? Yes. Okay. Hmm? That? Okay. All right, and so what we want to do is we want to celebrate good sex. Doesn't that make sense? Okay, we've dragged everybody through the mud about our sexual experiences and, and how we fell and how we failed. But praise God, He brought us back. Isn't that right? Amen. And one of the things that I really want to point out is no matter how far you've gone, that my friends and I, we testify that God can go deeper yet, that he can take us out of that pit and establish us. And I want to talk about what purity looks like from God's perspective. Contrary to popular belief, God is not against sex. God's intention for marriage isn't just sexual intimacy, but for full-blown intimacy. Intimacy, the definition is close familiarity or friendship, a closeness, an intimacy between a husband and a wife, a private, cozy atmosphere, a safe place, a warm place, a comfortable place. Because, you know, anything outside of monogamous marriage, you're not safe. I never felt safe in any of the five relationships I was ever in. As a matter of fact, any time that you've, you have given in to sex before marriage, there's a broken trust there because the relationship that you're in, even if you end up getting married... You can tell that what Laura went through is, is this constant like um, insecurity. Is he going to want something different or someone else? And the insecurity of your own body image. You know, I've been so sexually active with so many people. Am I going to measure up to the bar? And so God does not want to deny us anything good. What he wants us to have is the exclusivity of the safety of that warm, comfortable place. Doesn't that make sense? So God created man in his, in his own image. In the image of God created he, him, male and female. Right there. It's a simple formula. God created him in his image, male and female. Right there he sets it. It's not two men. It's not Adam and Steve. It's not uh, Joan and Alice. It's male and female. I don't know. It was as quick as I could come up with. But he goes on to say... And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. So here, very simplistically, it doesn't take a heavy theology person. I'm just a hairdresser. But what that means is that God in his word, he said, this is the image of God. It's a man and a woman. And then he gave him the instruction and the blessing. He said, be fruitful and multiply. The formula he set up. It goes on to say, and God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. Sex was God's idea. Not only his idea, it was his ideal. It was exactly how he designed it to be, and anything outside of that 
was not going to be according to the manufacturer's suggested uh, operation, right? Goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 2, because sexual immorality is so rampant, and I think that you can certainly make that application today, it says that every man should have how many wives? And every woman should have how many husbands? Here again, now we have a New Testament verse talking about the fact that God himself, he said, listen, this is the way that I established it in the beginning, and this is the way that I'm confirming it even in the New Testament. There was a um, movie, a documentary, about a woman who actually fell into, I don't know how that can happen, but she fell into a, a lesbian relationship. Basically, no men were coming to her door, and she started to be approached by women, and she thought, well, I don't have any other options. Let me just try it out. A Catholic woman who was very uh, spiritual somewhat, in this lesbian relationship, she went on a retreat. And here she's at this retreat with her girlfriend, and all of a sudden they come into a clearing. It's a, it's a lesbian retreat, and she sees two women making out um, in the woods. And as she looks, as she studies, she starts to realize that, that they're identical twins. And as she looks at them, her reaction was the same. She was a little taken aback, and her girlfriend came up and she said, hey, aren't those twins? And her girlfriend said, yes, they are. And she said, is that right? And she said, listen, if we start making judgments about them, then that's going to give people the right to make judgments about us. And this woman was at the precipice to decide. She said she was conflicted about even her own sexuality, but eventually she was able to ignore it enough to where she just put it behind her and never thought about it again. So what's happening now is that we have all these situations. We have two men, two identical twin men that want to be married and they want their marriage to be identified in the country. We have three women that had a marriage ceremony. We have NAMBLA, men that are saying that they were born to be uh, in love and to have sex with, with underage men. We have men that are having relationships with animals. But listen, you sell yourself even cheaper than that when you're holding a screen or a telephone where you're viewing pornography. God said, between a man and a woman. Isn't that right? So even if we sell ourselves out because now we're not even holding on to the one that God said that, that we were allowed to be connected with, you don't even get the opportunity to embrace her, to feel her, to touch her or him because one in three women are struggling with pornography addiction as well. So don't think that we're any better. Isn't that right? We have been created with an emotional side, a physical side, and a spiritual side. Spirit of prophecy even confirms this. These are like a rope that are all interwoven. It's impossible for us to do anything sexual without bringing the rest of us along, and Satan knows this. As a matter of fact, in satanic rituals, they always open it up with an orgy. Any kind of sexual perversion is permitted and brought into because what that does is it brings in demons. I got in a lot of trouble last year when I talked about the fact that there was demonic influence inside of me when I finally got the victory over the physical masturbation and pornography. Because then all of a sudden I started having these demonic dreams and I recognized that I had been fighting with demonic forces from the time that I was 13 years old when this thing had a grip on me. Nothing hurts so bad, wounds so deep, nor confuses one's sense of self in relationship to others so darkly as a violated sexuality. And no human relation holds more power to open the mind to the meaning of God's self-giving love and to calibrate the soul for spiritual intercourse with its maker 
than does a beautiful sexual union with the sacred commitment of marriage. Isn't that beautiful? So it's an immutable statement. Sex is like superglue. What happens is if I take superglue and I put it on, on a piece of paper and I, and I put it on a, on a, on a stone, it's going to work. Isn't that right? Are you with me? You guys aren't with me? Okay, you're with me. So if I take superglue and if I put it on my finger, and brother, stand up for me really quick. He's fast. And if I put superglue on his finger, right? And if I put our fingers together, is it going to work? Yes. Are you with me? Is it going to work? Yes. Of course it's going to work. Thank you. Because sex is superglue. Whether I use it in the right way, if I do it according to God's law, if I save myself for marriage and I hook up the first time sexually with a woman, what happens is there's a chemical that's released in the back of your brain. It's like morphine. It's powerful. And what it does is it says whatever you're looking at at the time, your mind takes a picture and it says, wow, that was beautiful. Let's do that again. And you know what? That, that super glue is designed to hold you together because when you start having kids, you know, you start having financial trouble, it's that super glue that's going to help to hold you together. Not only that, it's also going to show you the power of God because he's committed to you for a lifelong relationship. Isn't that right? But let me tell you, if we do it according to the world's way, hey, he's good looking, she's cute. Hey, you ought to taste that. You ought to see what's going around. Hey, everybody else is doing it. You know, I'm getting teased a lot because I'm the only one that hasn't given up my purity. These are conversations that are going on in Seventh-day Adventist academies and schools. And so what happens is I kept giving myself away. I was having as many as three conquests in a day and as many as three or four times a week, unsolicited or totally illicit situations with men. For 20 years, you can imagine how much of myself was left after that. As a matter of fact, I got to the point, I didn't even care about their name. Don't talk to me. Let's just do it. That's what Satan wants to do with your purity. That's how he wants to destroy it. The Bible even confirms that the superglue works in Ephesians 5.31. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians 6.16, it confirms it. It says, what? Don't you know that when you have sex with a prostitute or a computer screen or a girlfriend or a boyfriend or same sex, don't you know that the two shall be one flesh? Listen, as a matter of fact, Dr. Robert Curry says that there will never be safe sex until you can invent a condom for the heart. So I want to give you an illustration. Let's say that we're each born with our purity, right? It's this beautiful crystal heart. It's pure. There's no dents. There's no, there's no fingerprints. There's no chips. There's no dings. And so what happens is when I find my beloved, oh, when I find my beloved, right, I give her my heart. I give her this pure heart if I do it according to God's way. And if she's done it right, she gives me her heart. What's your name? Alexis. And I get to write Alexia. <laughs> or she writes Alexia on my heart, right? And then, and then she gives, I give her my heart and she writes her name on my heart. I write my name on her heart. And you know what? That's the way God designed it. But you know what happens is according to the world, they say, hey, you know, you ought to try what's going around. Hey, you ought to, you know, hook up with her or him. And eventually what happens is we get to a point and you heard in Laura's story and my story and in Jacques' story that eventually we don't even care so much. We're not even that picky. Any name will do. And eventually what happens is then when I find my beloved, when I finally decide that I want to do it according to God's way, I give her this heart and I say, good luck, Alexia. I hope you can find a space that you can scratch your name. Do you see the difference about why God asks us to stay pure? It's not designed to restrict you or to discipline you or, or to see if you can pass a test. It's designed to bless you. 
In Ephesians 4.19, Paul explains that the human capacity for love is gradually lost through lust. He says we can come to the place where we are past feeling, having lost all sensitivity. What, when that happens, the appetite cannot be satisfied, so we dive into sensuality, only to experience its diminishing returns. Sensuality or lust is sexual gratification without love. It's self-focused sex in which the other is related to as a tool or object used for pleasure as an end in itself without the faithfulness of lifelong commitment as the underlying meaning. As a matter of fact, this is confirmed in Hollywood. Did you know that Warren Beatty, known for being one of the biggest playboys in Hollywood from 1950 until the 2000s, he had bed over a thousand women, and they were all the choicest pieces, right? It, these were women that were uh, starlets, they were gorgeous women that would throw themselves at his feet, and he even acknowledged this when he made a quote, he said, for me, the highest level of sexual excitement is in a monogamous relationship. So even somebody who doesn't profess to know God even acknowledges the power of monogamous sex. The Song of Solomon celebrates the sensitivity of erotic love. God is not against sex. The Bible reflects exactly the attitude that you'd expect from an inventor writing about his invention. God, better than anyone else, appreciates what his invention means. He understands how it works and knows exactly what it's good for. He tells us how to use it, and he tells us how not to use it. The family relationship should be sanctifying in its influence. Christian homes established and conducted in accordance with God's plan are a wonderful help in forming Christian character. Parents and children should unite in offering loving service to Him who alone can keep human love pure and noble. Isn't that right, Laura? Jesus and the family relationship. Jesus did not enforce celibacy upon any class of men. He came not to destroy the sacred relationship of marriage, but to exalt it, to lift it up, and to restore it to its original sanctity. He looks with pleasure upon the family relationship where sacred and unselfish love bears sway. As a matter of fact, let me use the illustration of the first miracle that God even performed himself, turning the water into wine. Isn't that right? And so let me refresh your memory if you're not so up on it. But what happened is they ran out of the good stuff and they had nothing left. And so Jesus then took the water jars, right? And what he did is he filled them with water and he turned them into wine. The governor tasting the, the wine, he said, wow, most of the time people use the good stuff up. And then when that's all gone, you just use the inferior stuff for last. But Ellen White, I think, makes a perfect distinction he says, upon tasting that which the servants brought, the ruler found it superior to anything that he'd ever drunk before, and very different from that served at the beginning of the feast. Turning to the bridegroom, says, every man at the beginning sets forth the good wine, and then when men have well drunk, then that which is worse, but you have kept the good wine until now. Ellen White says that as men set forth the best wine first, and then afterward that which is worse, so does the world with its gifts. That which it offers may please the eye and fascinate the senses, but it proves to be unsatisfying. The wine turns to bitterness, the gaiety to gloom. That which was begun with songs and mirth ends in weariness and disgust. Premarital sex, STDs, the AIDS virus. Did you know that AIDS is on the rise? And did you know that the number one group of people that are getting infected with HIV now are actually the people that are between the ages of 15 and 30? Let me make it real for you. Did you know that every hour of every single day, two young people are infected with HIV every single hour? That's 48 people a day. Multiply that times 30 days in a month, 365 days a year. 
But Ellen White goes on to say, but the gifts of Jesus are always fresh and new. The feast that he provides for the soul never fails to give satisfaction and joy. Each new gift increases the capacity of the receiver to appreciate and enjoy the blessings of the Lord because he gives grace for grace. There could be no failure of supply. And if you abide in him, the fact that you receive a rich gift today is the guarantee that tomorrow you're going to receive an even better gift. Isn't that right, my friends? Let me tell you, the only thing that would keep somebody from my bed is if I was finally getting satisfied from something that was higher than what I had experienced. I never had the victory over my sexual appetite until I gave it to Jesus Christ. And now it's been 15 years and I've had nobody in my bed when I couldn't even go a week. What? Thank you. Thank you. But the gifts of Jesus are always fresh and new. And I want to tell you a synopsis story about my niece, a little girl who broke my heart. The moment that I met her, I fell in love with her. And so here's this little girl while I'm living in the gay lifestyle. Here's a little girl who knew Jesus from the time that she went from cradle roll on up. Like you, she was a good Adventist. And you know what? She lost her father when he was like 10 years old. He divorced the family. He said, I don't want to be a father or a husband anymore. By the way, he moved in with another Adventist family. He refused to go to church. But my niece's friends would come to church every week and tell her what a good time they were having with her father. But he came back after three years. And when he came back, that was also the beginning of when I gave my heart to the Lord. And one day I had an opportunity to ask my niece. I said, Aaron, when was it that you knew that God was a very personal God to you? And she said, I knew God was real when he gave me back my dad. But three years later, he died. He was in surgery and he was in the recovery room and the surgery had gone well, but he died with a massive stroke. And within three days, Aaron had lost her father, not once, but now twice. She hadn't even graduated from high school. And yet you can imagine the love that little girl deserved. Every little girl deserves a father that her bouncer on her knee and tell her that she's a princess and that she's precious and that he'll protect her. Isn't that right? But she determined that she wanted God to write her love story. And so she went to uh, Union College. She's, she's not an ugly girl. She's a, an, a cute girl. And so she went through Union College uh, for five years. She graduated from high school, I mean, from college. And and she started working in a place where there weren't a lot of young Adventists. And a lot of her friends were getting married, and she was in their weddings. But nothing had really happened for her. She dated a guy for three weeks, realized that this was not the guy that God had intended for her. And so she broke it off. Still wanting God to write her love story, still holding on to her purity, not knowing what the future was going to bring. And then one day, this guy did approach her on Facebook. Facebook can be good or bad. Isn't that right? And so what happened is this boy started talking to her and eventually they started having dates on FaceTime. Eventually he drove up from Kansas to Nebraska to ask her to court and they had a long distance relationship. And so eventually he asked for her hand in marriage. And on the day that they got married, as I was sitting there in the congregation, I got to witness my niece's very first kiss with her beloved. Let me tell you, The fact that this man earned her trust and didn't take anything that didn't belong to him, what that meant is that not only did he earn her trust, but she was safe and that she was treated like a princess. Nothing was taken from her and she didn't give up anything easy either. So he would know that what he was earning was valuable. Isn't that right? He had the opportunity to scratch his name on her heart and she for him. As a matter of fact, he might be the lousiest kisser in the world, but she'll never know it. And for her, he'd be the most romantic man at all because they're going to discover it all together on their own. Isn't that something? 
And so now they have the opportunity without any guilt, without any condemnation or shame, to proclaim their love. Would you like to see their first kiss? Really? Would you like to? What I want you to see is I want you to watch how this young man, six foot seven, the Lord brought a man six foot seven into my five foot one niece's life. I want you to watch as he holds her hands when the pastor says, now you may kiss the bride. I want you to watch how he plants his foot back. He claims what is rightfully his. He pulls her into him. He plants one on her. And you can see my knees kind of swoon. Her face goes bright red. She even looked at the congregation like, did they see that? Would you like to see it? There you go. When he steps back, he's about to say, now you may kiss the bride. Here he goes. Watch the foot plant. There it is. Watch her. Woo, back and forth. Whoa. Isn't that something? I would like my colleagues to come and join me on the stage. Mm -hmm. Come on up, Jacques. Laura, Wayne, Danielle, Ron. We are a testimony. We didn't do it right. We got derailed at a very early age, just like some of you. But let me tell you something. We may not have had the pleasure of experiencing that very first kiss with our beloved. Some of us are still even struggling with same-sex attraction. But let me tell you something. On a regular day-to-day -day basis, we are learning the privilege and the power of surrendering our sexual appetite to our Lord. Because just like you, you don't have any exclusive rights to have a lover either just because you're heterosexual. But let me tell you something. We are as white as snow. Ron was working in a bar for so many years in a gay bar. He was in several gay relationships. And the Lord restored him not only to a beautiful wife, but also to a family, double portions. Danielle, living in the bisexual lifestyle, sleeping on sofas, hooking up with bands, shaving her head. And the Lord plucked her out and he made her white as snow. Am I right? And then Wayne arrested twice for prostitution. He should have gotten AIDS and died because all of his other friends did. The men that he hooked up sexually, they're all gone. But the Lord anointed him and he set him up. And even from the top of his head, he's white as snow. <laughs> and my friend Laura, who my heart breaks for and bleeds for, for all the people that, that she took advantage of that also took advantage of her. She stands as a testimony of somebody who grew up in Adventist education, who wanted to do right, and even the own reality of finding out that she had become a whore. She now also stands before you, cleaned and redeemed. Am I right? Amen. And for my friend Jacques, who didn't even know how to have a relationship with a woman because he got derailed and he only saw them as objects. And now he talks about the type of woman that he wants. And that when he smells something that might be different in a girl, that she might be a little bit on the, on the flirtatious side, he bolts like Joseph and he says, I have to get out of there. At 24 years old, I was so touched and moved by the fact that somebody young can actually be sexually pure. Let me tell you something. God has restored all of us. Isn't that right? And so you may not be perfect and pure like maybe my niece was to save her first kiss for her marriage. But let me tell you something. Jesus says that I'm a virgin in him. Isn't that right? Amen. And that we are a virgin in us. Let me tell you something. If you want God 
to write your love story, I want to invite you to stand with us. Because we may not have done it right, because we have fallen, we also recognize the power of God to not only restore us, to redeem us, but to make us virgins in Him again. And now we have made a decision that we want to do it according to His way. And if that's your desire, and listen, this isn't a corporate call. This isn't for everybody, because maybe some of you are already doing that right. And for those of you who still have your purity, God bless you, and we pray that you'll maintain it. But to those of you who think that it may be over, for those of you who may have compromised and maybe have given in to the sexual pressure of a boy or a girl, I want to let you know that as we have the right to stand and to receive what God has available to us, so do you. And it should break your heart to think of what we've put our Savior through. And let me tell you, there's not a day that goes by that we don't recognize what He has sacrificed in our stead. But let me tell you something. I can only stand as a poor, pathetic sinner in the, in the, in the presence of a mighty, redeemed Savior and walk in that purity and the freedom and the liberty that we feel on a regular basis. I want you to have that freedom too. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, I'm asking, Lord. Now, I'm not even asking anymore, Lord. I'm taking what is rightfully mine. You have already died for our purity. You've already died for the sins that we've committed. And Lord, now we start to see marriage in a totally different light. We see that we want something different in our lives, but we can't do it. We never could do it. We weren't designed to do it. And because we've tasted and seen some of the things, Lord, that we never should have touched in our hands before, Lord, we recognize now that you're the only one that can change us. And Lord, I don't know what else that I could possibly do to show these young people that the, that the road to hell is paved with all of these wonderful trappings that Satan dangles in front of us. And whether we're in church or out of church, Lord, the enemy has been very, very... Um, very good at tempting us and getting us to fall. But Lord, we're turning it around. We recognize that 2,000 years ago, you died for everything that we need to not only be restored, but to be overcomers because you said only the overcomers will you grant to sit with you in your throne in heaven. And so Lord, we are taking what is rightfully ours. We don't deserve it. There's nothing that we could ever do to earn it, but Lord, it is mine. It is mine because of my pathetic weakness. And Lord, I admit it. Because any time I, I allow pride to come in or to think that I stand before crowds talking about Jesus Christ, Lord, I am taken down to the very quick. But I recognize that I am the chief of sinners and therefore, Lord, you said that in my weakness, your strength is made perfect and I claim it. Lord, for my brothers and sisters who have fallen, show them, walk with them, Lord. It's not going to be easy. It may take time. It may take a month, a year, a couple of years. And Lord, it's going to get messy before it gets better, but I pray, Father, that you have put the tools in their hands that they would find that overcoming victory as well. And so, Lord, let your name be praised. Let our repentance be sweet. Let it be complete. Help us to confess to you, Lord, the one who has already seen everything that we've done. There's nothing hidden from your eyes. And how foolish of us to think that we can hide our secret sins from you. We might do a good job at doing it in church or in school, but Lord, you still know what's going on behind the scenes. And you're the only one that matters. So Lord, because we have seen what you've done in our lives, make us clean. Let us be virgins in you. 
And Lord, may we give you permission to write our love story too. Is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2014 conference at the cross in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.